in our series in this amazing book. And um, I just got to tell you the truth, man. I was, uh, Romans chapter 8 has consistently been my go-to uh, chapter. I love Romans chapter 8. Uh, but uh, studying chapter 9 this week and, and really was wrestling through, even last night, I was wrestling through uh, one particular passage there in the, uh, chapter 9. And it just on a whole nother level of coolness. And so I hope to be able to display that and, and share that with you guys this morning. And so just to give you a context of our journey so far through the book of Romans, uh, when Paul closes his chapter 8, he really, for, for the most part, he ends his presentation of this glorious and magnificent gospel in which he presents. And it, it's the gospel that, remember in chapter 1, he says, the gospel of power unto God for salvation, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And then in, later on, he says, this is the gospel where righteousness apart from the law has been given to us through faith in Christ. And then later on, this is the gospel through which we are justified and that we have peace with God. And where there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is the gospel where, where Paul can actually declare to you and I that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all of creation. Now, this is a glorious and magnificent gospel. And I hope that as you begin to listen through these, this, this journey through the book of Romans, I hope you realize how powerful it is, the message that we have received and the message that we have been given and how powerful that message is to change lives. And so, it is glorious, and it is magnificent. But there is one critical problem that needs to be dealt with. And so, I'm going to present this problem here, starting in verse 1. And then we'll talk more through it as we go through the chapter together. Okay, so, uh, look at me, chapter 9, verse 1, if you have your Bibles. Or you can look up here. So, let's start. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience affirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So here's the issue. And, uh, and it, this is a very critical issue when it comes to, to just how really how powerful is this gospel. And, and so Paul, uh, in Paul's day, as it is today, uh, many people in Israel, many Jewish people, many chosen people have rejected the gospel. They have outrightly rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so if God's chosen people, if these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
these are the recipients of the Ten Commandments and the prophetic words. If they rejected Jesus and his good news, then the question comes down is how really is powerful? How powerful is this gospel message? How powerful really is all the stuff that Paul has been preaching up to chapter 8? And this is a serious theological problem. You may not appreciate it as much sitting here 2,000 years later removed, but this is a very serious theological problem. For example, if the gospel is powerless to convert the Jews, then how do we trust it to convert the Gentiles? And if, and if in this section, if, if, if the Jewish rejection means that God had rejected them in their unbelief, how can we believe that he won't also reject us. And if God's purpose all through the Old Testament, if God's purpose for the nation of Israel has been frustrated, what hope can we place on his purpose for us? Does that make sense? If God cannot change a nation that he has chosen, that he has brought out of slavery from Egypt, brought into the promised land, if God cannot save them, then the gospel message is without power. How, how, how incredibly um, significant is this issue? And Paul is going to spend three chapters 9, 10, and 11. I just get to wrestle with the first chapter of it this morning. And so can we trust God is the bottom line. How, how powerful is this gospel? And let me pause here, and let me ask this question to you. And I know I work with students a lot, and I talk a lot about sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. But I want to ask the question, how powerful is the gospel in your life? How powerful is it? Right? Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 declares that the, he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so let me ask the question, is there power in display as you think about the gospel in your life? And so for the rest of chapter 9, in profound theological language, Paul is going to answer that question of power in three ways. And I'll give them to you here in your outline. The gospel power is based, first of all, on God's promise. Gospel power is based on God's freedom in his mercy. And gospel power is based on God's purpose in salvation. Okay, so, so strap on your thinking hats and let's wrestle with this together. And then we're going to dive into here. So the first thing, gospel power is based on God's promise. Look at me, verse 6 to 13. Paul writes, it is not as though God's word has failed. Right? Remember the, the issue here, right? The Jewish people are, have rejected the gospel, so what is going on? And so Paul begins his answer. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. 
At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who called, she, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so it's the first part of the answer. The God, uh, the gospel power is based on God's promise. And so in verse 6, Paul declares that God's word did not fail. In other words, uh, the gospel did, is not weak. It did not somehow lose its power. Why? Because he says there is an Israel within the Israel. Does that make sense? There's a people within the people is the people of promise. And so to prove his point, Paul gives two examples from the book of Genesis, Genesis 21 and Genesis 25 in the birth of Isaac and then the births of Jacob and Esau. And the argument is quite simple. Not everyone who is born of Abraham is chosen. Ishmael was not chosen, but Isaac was. Esau was not chosen. Jacob was. And in verse 9, we see that Hagar was not chosen. Sarah was. And so the argument might be simple. The ramifications are huge. Salvation and peace with God comes to you and me, not because of our ancestors or our inheritance. Not because what we have done or not do, not even because of who we are, as beautiful as you are. No, salvation comes to us because God has promised that through the chosen line of Abraham, down through the history, the Messiah would come, the Son of God, and he would die, and he would give of his life for you and I, and by his death and resurrection save us. So this is what God meant when he called Abraham out of his country. In Genesis chapter 12, and 2 and 3, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. In verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and what? All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So when you sit over coffee with your friends, when you sit with your friend and you tell them about Jesus and you invite them into this relationship with God, know that there is power there, but it's not from your words. It is from God's words and his promise that he will save, that he will bring salvation, and he's going to use you to speak that truth into other people's lives. And it's beautiful. So I hope you drink a lot of coffee this week. And you have those conversations because this is not you. It is God speaking through you and his promise continues through you and I. So that's the first answer. Now you may be wondering, well, okay, so let me get this straight. God arbitrarily chooses one and rejects another. Even before Jacob and Esau was born, he says, I'm going to choose Jacob over Esau, right? And Esau, you're going to serve Jacob. Now, 
That does not seem fair. It's a great objection. Let's continue in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. All right? I just want to sink, let that sink in, okay? Right? This is a very critical thing about God. The second answer to the question of how powerful is this gospel is a very uncomfortable and controversial one. Gospel power is based on God's freedom in his mercy. See, the objection is very logical. Right? That makes sense, right? If God chooses some and he rejects others for no other reason than simply because he can, does that not make him unjust? Does that not make him a tyrant? Does that not make him even kind of evil? Paul's response is very clear. Not at all. And once again, he turns to the Old Testament. And it's time in Exodus chapter 9 and in chapter 33 to back his conclusion. It is easy to see God as being merciful. But to see him as one who hardens hearts and uses people, that's a little bit more difficult. And so how are we to understand Paul's explanation? So I'm going to give you five things here. Uh, first of all, remember, 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 this freedom that we're talking about here is reserved for God alone. Okay? Does that make sense? That this freedom is reserved for God alone. If any human, if any created being have this ultimate absolute power in our sinfulness, no doubt there will be grievous injustices and evil actions. But God in his nature is not perfect. I mean, I'm sorry, God in his nature is perfect. He is not sinful. And he is the only person for whom absolute power does not absolutely corrupt. He's the only one that can say this about himself and be true. Secondly, Paul speaks here only of God's freedom in how he dispenses mercy. You, you, you got to look at the language here, okay? Now, yes, it, it's true. God is free to do whatever he wants, right? He can kill us. He can stomp on us. He can destroy nations. He can do whatever he wants, but that's not Paul's main point here. What is his point? As the quotes from Exodus and, and the Old Testament passage proves, Paul wraps God's freedom only around his mercy. God gives mercy freely and he withholds it freely. In fact, in the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, God's mercy 
greatly overflows and over his judgment. So you have to see in this passage when it speaks about this controversial that God chooses some and hardens others, he is talking about the dispensing of mercy. Thirdly, apart from mercy, you and I, we're all like Pharaoh. See, to harden one's heart means to become resistant to God's mercy and forgiveness. And Pharaoh, even before the events of Exodus, because of sin, had already become hard-hearted. And if you think about it logically, it's not that God has to harden anyone's heart. Our hearts have already been hardened against God through sin. And so, in the same way that you and I, we were dead in our trespasses, and we're dead in our sins, according to Ephesians 2. And there was nothing good in us, nothing that desired God or wants to even live for him. But only when grace, only when mercy was poured out on us through nothing we have done or earned, only in that moment are we awakened to the love and mercy of God. And I know I, I, know I say that, and, and you sit there and you say, I, I'm not too bad, I'm not that bad, Tom. Right? I mean, if you think you're not that bad, just come and work with me in youth ministry. I mean, I, I love youth ministry. I'm not saying they're evil or sinful. Yes, I am. I, but I, 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 what, I, what I notice every single time we work as we do youth ministry is, is the overcoming of this self-centered life. Right? As adults, you hide it better. Youth, I see it all the time. Is figuring out who I am and then struggling through it all and figuring out this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. There's this wickedness in our hearts. There's this, this, this thing in our, in our soul that eats away at who we are. And God does not have to harden. So that's thirdly. And fourthly, God is very consistent. God is very consistent. And so by, by, by going to the Old Testament and comparing to the rejection of the Jews and God choosing some in the, in the Jewish community to be saved, Paul is saying God is very consistent. He's always acted this way. See, God did not fail. See, choosing who to be merciful and who to harden, this has been God's methodology since the ancient days. Right? And out of all the nations, God chose Abraham. Out of, all, uh, out of Abraham's two sons, he chose Isaac. Out of Isaac, he and so he keeps choosing, he keeps choosing. But God is very consistent. It ought not to surprise us that God does this. It might bother you, but it shouldn't surprise you. And finally, Number five here, there's, there's ultimately a mystery that Paul does not fully answer. And I know we hate that answer, right? We want answers. Tell them, what do we pay you for? We want answers. Well, there's 2,000, maybe 10,000 books out there that can help you find the answer to this question. And I didn't have time this week to read them all. I tried. There's, re there's, there's good reasons why Paul does not answer. 
there, there is this power in not knowing because God's mystery often will lead us to worship if we're not cynical. See, see you, there, there's this wisdom in this mystery, how we handle mystery, because if you're cynical, you will look there and say, God, you, I don't want to follow you. That mystery is too much. I don't like you. I don't like the way you function. I don't even like the way you, how you roll. I'm not going to follow you. That's the mystery. But yet, if you're not cynical, if your heart is softened to the things of God, what that does is, is awakens in you and I this sense of awe and wonder and worship. And Paul, at the end of this section in Romans eleven thirty three, he declares, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Brothers and sisters, that's worship. Mystery does not need to bring us to despair. Let mystery bring us to worship. So when you sit over coffee with your friend. Don't take this passage and wonder, hmm, is God hardening this guy's heart or is he pouring out his mercy? I think that's the wrong way to apply this. Just realize this, the fact that you are sitting there and you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to your friend is proof that God is actively, through you, pouring out his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness to your friend. So at these moments, simply be a funnel for God to pour his grace and forgiveness through you to them. God has chosen them to hear the gospel through you, and there is power there. So go have coffee and speak mercy and grace. Now let's lead us to the last answer to our initial question, how powerful is the gospel? And the answer is this. Gospel power is based on God's purpose in salvation. There's a long section here starting in verse 19. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. 
and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is as just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. It's a lot there. And so just real brief and run through it. Verse 19 to 20, Paul actually does not reject the question, does he? It says, he says, uh, why does God still blame? He does not reject. That's a legitimate question. What he is rejecting is the attitude of the questioner. Because the objection simply says, why does God blame us? Right? When he's the one to blame because he made us like this. He hardens our hearts. Okay? Why, why, do, why do we get blamed for this, our sins? Why are we held accountable when it's God who makes us do this. And Paul rebukes the false view of God as being this tyrant who saves some and rejects others. You do not know the real God. You do not know the real God. In verse 21, then, then we come to verse 21. What does verse 21 says? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. So what do you do with this? Right? Referring, obviously, here to God as the potter. And he takes clay and he makes some for normal use, ordinary use, and takes some for special use. And so verse 22 to 24, Paul tells us to look at verse 21. And if you feel the angst there, and I hope you do, Look, verse, look at verse 21 through the eyes of mercy. Through God's eyes of mercy. And it's so amazing what Paul says here. For the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. These are scary words, right? What does God do in his freedom in mercy? Number one, first, he, he, he bears with them with great patience or long-suffering. Because th- if you think about God in his power, right, and he created all things, he has every right, does he not, to destroy you and I the first moment we're born. Does he, does he not have the right to, to step on us and, and, and send us into destruction? But he does not. What does he do? He allows us to live. He allows Pharaoh to continue to rule on the throne and persecute his people. He puts up with the unfaithfulness of the Israelites through those years in the wilderness. He puts up with you and me. God is long-suffering because he is kind. Secondly, God chooses to show his wrath and make his power known for what purpose? So that even objects of wrath in seeing his judgment and power. Now get this, right? Even objects of wrath can see God's judgment and power and his holiness might turn to him and be saved. 
objects prepared for destruction, right? That's what Paul says. There's objects that are prepared for destruction does not mean that they will go to destruction. There is room here in the language, in the, in, in the argument that objects of wrath can indeed become objects of mercy. Does that make sense? Objects of wrath can become objects of mercy. How do I know this? Because I'm sitting here and I'm looking at some. Are we not, in one time or another, objects of God's wrath? Were we not under condemnation? See, thirdly, we are proof of this, my friends, that God takes objects of mercy, I mean, objects of mercies from Jews and from Gentiles. Okay, I'm talking too fast because I get excited. I sat with this last night. This is the passage I sat with for a couple of hours in the morning. I heard, I heard birds singing. It's just wrong, okay? Uh, so this is, this is what's happening here. He takes objects of mercy from where? From both Jews and from Gentiles. That's verse 24. And so think about this. Let it sink in that those whom God rejected in the Old Testament, those who are descended from Ishmael, Esau, those who are Gentiles, because of mercy, God has now included in the family of God. Objects of wrath can become objects of mercy. You and I are proof of that, my friends. And so, you need to look at each other. And you have to look at each other and say, you are an object of mercy. In fact, why don't you turn to someone and you tell them that right now. Look in their eyes Said you are an object of mercy. Do it. Be awkward. So what am I saying, friends? Yeah, it is true. The Bible is very clear. God predestined some to destruction and some to glory. Yes, it is true in this passage and others that he hardened some and he softened the hearts of others. And yes, all of this is a mystery that we have difficulty answering. But in all these things, through mercy, God's purpose is to bring everyone to salvation, to the gospel message. This was his plan all along. And how do I know this? I was reading 2 Peter 3, 9, and he puts it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? Patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, I don't know if this excites you, but everything about God in the Old Testament, all the way to Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, God is about saving people unto himself. And that is his sole message. That is his sole mission, to bring a broken, wayward people that he has created and loved back into the family, back into the original 
creation. And so that's the meta-narrative, the overarching story of Scripture, that God is reconciling the world unto himself, not counting people's sins against them. And so when you sit over coffee, it might be just nasty office coffee. And you sit there with your friend, remember that you are partaking in this grand narrative of God's redeeming power for people. And you, can, you and I, we get to play a part of this. And some of you will be called to missions, and some of you will be called into the nations, and you will go and you get to play a part of this redeeming purpose of God. And what, a, what an incredible way to think about life, that this life is not my own. And as you sit there and you share with your friends, there's power there. Because you're right in the middle of God's will and purpose for your life and for their lives. So I'm sitting here. How powerful is this gospel? Is based not on your words or, 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 or the way that we present it, how well we do it. It is based upon God's promise. Secondly, it is based on God's freedom in his mercy. Therefore, C.S. Lewis can write something like this, talking about Aslan. He says, he is not safe, but he is good. God is not safe, but he is merciful. And that is a good news. And thirdly, it is based on God's purpose in salvation for you and for the world so that none would perish and all would come to repentance. I hope you hear the heart of God, not as some tyrant who chooses some and hardens others, but one who pours his mercy out and says, even objects of wrath can become objects of mercy. So what's our response? What's, what's going to be our response? And, and I struggle with this one. Um, in, in, at the start of Romans 9, Paul writes this in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And let me just ask the question, how many of us recently have felt this kind of anguish and sorrow for those outside of Christ. You go to work, you go to school, and you see people who do not have the faith, do not know about the forgiveness, do not understand the grace and mercy of God. Do you weep? Is there anguish? How many of us feel this kind of love? A love strong enough that you would gladly trade places with your friend. Say, I go to hell if you can be saved. That's an incredible statement Paul writes for all eternity. We will read that line and say, really, Paul, did you really feel this? I, I confess that I am so far from this kind of love and passion for my family and friends. 
why we need the gospel more today than we ever needed before. Why we need desperately the mercy and grace of God today more than we ever needed before. And dear friends, that's why the gospel never grows old, never becomes outdated, and we never graduate from the gospel. It is all we have and is all we need. So as you've tasted mercy, can I challenge you to see your life through the lens of mercy? I, I don't know what that means for you, but I know what that means for me. That if I can look at people, if I look at people through lens of mercy, lens of grace and forgiveness, how beautiful does the world look? How gloriously Christ-centered would our lives be? Find one way this week to show mercy to someone. Now you've been given an awesome opportunity to contact a representative and speak up to those who can't speak for themselves. I am a refugee. My family came here. But what I was blessed enough that my parents got their citizenship when I was still under 18. So I came under them. I didn't know there are people that didn't have it until I talked with Jitsu and others. Do something to show mercy to someone this week. Think of one person that needs grace in your life and offer it to him this week. And here's the biggest challenge. If all of you this week come and share the gospel, bring mercy of God into someone's life. When you bring him here next week, man, we'll throw you a party. We'll rejoice together. Church, that's, that's, that's the mission and heart of God. That's what he wants, and that's his desire. And may the Lord Jesus reveal to you and to me just how powerful his gospel really is. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I am, I am just so humbled um, and blown away uh, by, by, by the beauty of your word and the depth and the riches from which you have shared to us. Thank you, Father, for the gospel message that is not based on anything we have done, but it's based on you. That the gospel message is not a series of propositions. It's an invitation to know the God who created us, who would pour out his mercy on us, And so, Father, we need your mercy. This church needs your mercy. This world needs your mercy. There are relationships in this room that need your mercy. And God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, in his name, we ask that you would pour out mercy on all of us. 
Let it come. Let it overflow. Let it be for us this week a rich fountain of life. That God, you are not angry with us. You are merciful and loving and longing for us to be with you. And therefore, it is true that there is now no condemnation. There will never be condemnation now or in eternity for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You have taken it all, and you have covered us by the blood of Jesus. So let us rise. Let us worship. Let us declare, God, you are worthy of our praise and adoration in our lives. And all we have is yours. Please rise with us and sing together.